Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by my colleague, SEPAD fellow, um, Lancaster colleague, Dr. Rahaf Al-Dugli. Rahaf is a lecturer in Middle East and North African studies with me in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religious Studies. Um, she works on Syria, on masculinities, on gender, on nationalism, lots of absolutely fascinating things. She's been heavily involved in what we've been doing with SEPAD, and I'm really excited that we finally figured out a time where our diaries permit us to sit down and record this podcast to talk about all things Syria, uh, masculinity, gender, nationalism, Syria, and her forthcoming book, which is titled Constructing the Nation, Masculism and Gender Bias in Syrian Nationalism, which is forthcoming with Manchester University Press later this year or early next. Rahaf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Simon, for having me. It's my pleasure, really. Thank you. The pleasure is ours, Rahaf. So, um, as always, I, I start the podcast with a question about what what prompted your your interest in in both politics and indeed academia. Oh well, this is a difficult question, and <laughs> it's complex and simple at the same time. Uh, well, actually, I don't think like, uh, and here I'm uh, I'm going to speak as a Syrian. Um, and like uh, we're the voice of uh, many Syrians. I think we are all like kind of small politicians. We all are very interested in politics so far, having lived in a very strong national tangent that we all have in a way certain opinions about what's going on, uh, giving with Syria in its geopolitical, uh, I mean, yeah, where it is. So we are all having this kind of small political opinions. But uh, we, in Syria, we don't have uh, politics as a department or we have a small institution. So I did my degree in English literature and then I did my MA in literary, critical literary studies. But it was the, the MA dissertation was a little bit more um, polit- focused on politics. And then I decided to do my PhD in politics. So, uh, so we've been uh, growing up for uh, growing up as having this kind of uh, passion about following uh, politics because of the culture, the society, the, the regime's rhetoric that's been uh, propagated and, uh, and perpetuated throughout our early years. So it kind of we are all having a political opinion <laughs> since, uh, since we know uh, or since we have become mature enough to have one. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So there's a positionality to your interest in, in politics then, as a Syrian, you say? Yeah, of course. Yes, sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So leaving the, the, the politics aside for a minute, why English literature? What was it about literature that that, that piqued your interest? I mean, I, I can see the the link from literature to, to your work in terms of the discursive focus, but, but what, what pulled you into literature? You would laugh now because I knew, uh, well, I got like, um, my grades were allowing me to do low degree. Okay. But then I thought like, because I was fo- focused on having a scholarship uh, f- from uh, the Ministry of Education. And I knew that if I got uh, into the English literature, then I can have a scholarship to Britain. Okay. So, <laughs> That was why I got into literature or English literature. 
Well, I thought that you were going to say that you were inspired by the work of Harry Potter or something like that. So No, no. So what was your first literary love then? Uh, well, James Joyce, uh, D.H. Lawrence. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. Why? What amazing you... I don't know. Like, I love them. Uh, there is There was a novel called The Gypsy, I think, uh, as far as I remember. But these were, like, the kind of novels uh that like uh, stayed with me till now okay and did you have this this love of literature before you you studied it in a slightly instrumental way i mean were you were you passionate about syrian and, and arabic literature growing up no no <laughs> not as such <laughs> We did have, so I get into English literature, we didn't, uh, yeah, the Arabic literature, we always have a very strong education in terms of uh, the Arabic literature, so uh, so the type of teaching that we have in Syria is that they are, uh, they do, we do focus on uh, the Arabic literature so much, and, and, and it's required for us to get really high marks in, uh, in, 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 in these subjects. So, of course, I was like, uh, I, I do read Abul Ala and Marin, Zalqabani, all of these big names. Uh, I, I know their works, Al um, Maghout, uh, and many big names. Uh, but I mean, Khalid Khalife, so uh, I love his writings. So, yeah, of course, it would be in my free time, I would read the, them. So, I mean, uh, but I mean, in terms of the, the my first degree, it was in English literature. Sure, so. okay, okay. So then, the move to to critical literary theory and then the move from there to politics just tell us a little bit about it i mean i can i can understand where you would come from but but what what was driving you there and who were some of the the theoretical inspirations that you had so I did my MA in English uh, Literary Studies, and from there um, I chose for my MA three uh, novels, and these novels were very much in, set in a in a in an entrenched political context, and I treated them as political texts actually. And it took me to the Syrian history and to different parts of uh, of, of the, the Arab world. Or, uh, or the Middle East, I, I chose Lebanon, Syria, and, and Algeria. And from there, I thought like uh, that I need to do something in politics. And it drove me into uh, writing uh, a PhD proposal. Uh, and especially also this contact that in 2012, it has been, uh, Syria has been like uh, raging with these protests. And, uh, and, and it took me like, it's, it's, it's my dream to, to pursue a PhD in politics, given that we, we were not given this chance in Syria to study politics. So uh, I, I think that it was both uh, driven by uh, the, the, the time, the context that we were living in, the Arab Spring, and also uh, my interest in, um, in analyzing novels, culture, uh, religion, and also the relationship between politics and these kind of uh, social, cultural, and, uh, and, and different contexts and how they do interact uh, with each other. That's amazing. It's really interesting hearing you talk about that. I mean, it's politics broadly defined rather than the, the traditional, rather stale um, political parties, perhaps. 
Um, it, it, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't have political parties in Syria as such. <laughs> yeah. And not have a kind of developed political parties. We do have only one. And this kind of uh, invite you to, or kind of in, intrigue you to, uh, to, to study that, to understand that from not only someone who has lived there, but someone who also needs to understand the theories uh, behind uh, this authoritarianism. So there's so much going on there, and I guess that all comes out in, in the work that you're doing on on broader understandings of politics in Syria, on authoritarianism, nationalism, masculinities, gender, all of this comes together in your in your work and helps us to understand uh, contemporary Syria in a, in a much more holistic way. But I wonder, can you tell us just a little bit about the PhD, and then we'll go on to, uh, to looking at some of the things that you've done after that, and... It's worth stressing that I guess your your PhD is your forthcoming book with Manchester. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I was well, I was drawn initially to the subject of nationalism uh, when I was uh, since I was um, in in Syria. It's always brought me to ask these kind of questions: what is belonging? What is identity? Uh, and uh, why there are certain definition of uh, who deserves to be Syrian, especially when you are living under a very, uh, I mean, strong national standard and, and the way that this has been uh, strong indoctrination since you are in, uh, in, in, in a primary and secondary school. And it's always brought me to ask, where does this, where do these values or ethos or, or national sentiments come from? So I did my PhD uh, in nationalism, understanding uh, the way that nationalism or or the way Syria is imagined in these political and philosophical uh, texts, texts going back to the 19th and early 20th century, uh, and how it defined and how the regime has instrumentalized or constructed these notions and borrowed these notions from certain ideologues to cultivate certain uh, national identity and belonging. So, so Rahab, can I stop you there for a second? Just yeah. there's, there's so much yeah. interesting stuff coming out of that. I wonder, can you just put a bit of color to what you're talking about in terms of who are the ideologues that you were looking at and, and what are the texts? Yeah, I looked at uh, three Syrian thinkers who were, two of them were considered the fathers of Ba'athism, uh, and their works were were available and archived. And another one who is Salta al-Husari, who is considered by largely, I mean, widespread, is considered the father of Arab nationalism. And I, I studied Ba'athism as, uh, in its discourse, I did not go into the party politics, but rather the texts themselves, something that the been, for example, uh, Sat al Hasri wrote more than 20 books in a very uh, short time in order to propagate what is the idea of the nation. And I think his ideas were more borrowed and kind of uh, also, um, I mean, directly had a great impact on formulating the Ba'ath uh, national or the Ba'ath thought or the Ba'ath, uh, the Ba'athism or Ba'athism in general. So I studied these three thinkers and I, I kind of uh, debated the origins of their idea, where it is coming from. Uh, is it the Germanic conception of nationalism or is it the French conception of nationalism? What does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be uh, a Vox or, or, or 
Shab or Jamahir or Masses, how we were identified at that time. And I did uh, work on gender uh, to see how these thinkers or how these ideologues places women in their uh, uh, in, in their texts or in their imagination of the nation. Hmm. And you see, these texts were all written between 1920s and 1960s, uh, and it was a gra- kind of a very uh, um, uncertain political uh, context at that time so we didn't have the we didn't have at that time the birth of the the modern nation state but we did have the kind of competing ideologies between islamism or secularism and these three thinkers actually i i i do believe that they are the four uh, kind of the most uh, uh, influential uh, thinkers in terms of their writings and activism in shaping what does it mean to be a citizen uh, what 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 is the nation, what is belonging, what is identity, what is an Arab, and why we do call it an Arab, uh, an Arab world, actually. It does, it does came from, the, uh, from there. Amazing. It's really fascinating, and I'm very much looking forward to, to the book coming out. I wonder, can you just give us a, a quick sort of synopsis of your findings? I mean, what's the, the big takeaway message from, from the book and from the thesis? Well, from the book, I focus only on the construction of masculinism in in Syrian uh, nationalism. So I started with defining Syrian nationalism and uh, its characteristics, its uh, uh, the way that what values and it was this kind of. in, in their text, how do they define it and how the regime later uh, employ it. Uh, and then, uh, of course, it is very masculinist and it is very uh, uh, gendered bias. But I did not go into uh, women's, not about calling for women's rights as such. The book more is focusing on how the man is also constructed in these texts. So I, I do believe that taking a feminist uh, uh, stance with, with these books and kind of employ a feminist theory is very important and very critical uh, and, and needed actually but I did take another look at how the man is also a victim of such uh, uh, propagation of such ideology that does not only uh, subordinate women in a way but also put so much pressure uh, on the man and it does create uh, a kind of a hierarchical categorization of uh, what does it mean to be uh, a citizen again and um, so uh, I looked at songs, I looked at uh, I'm looking also at the stages uh, about dominating the public space uh, um, I'm looking at the constitution uh, so I'm treating this ideology uh, as um, and, and looking at how this kind of ideology that that was born um, in, in 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 late 19, uh, 20th century. How it does echo, uh, have many echoes in the constitutions, in songs, and even political speeches. Fascinating. Can I pick up on some of that then, Rahaf? Because I think there's there's a lot of, of really interesting and important stuff that you're doing there with regard to, to masculinities and and gender, and we're seeing that play out, or at least having spoken to you and, and, and heard you speak at various events, can see how this plays out in the context of, of the Syrian conflict. And mm-hmm. it, it strikes me that it's it's an incredibly toxic way of, of living, putting aside the conflict, of course, but the, the toxic form of masculinity that's been cultivated has devastating impacts on on all Syrians, or it can do at least. So, yeah. Can you can you shed a bit of light on on what you understand by that, and how you think 
this this particular understanding of masculinity shapes the identities and the performance of identities across Syria right now, please? Well, it is, this is something that, in my PhD, I did not go beyond the 2007, to be honest. Sure. But then I I started to think the last two years, I've been writing extensively on this, about the rule of masculinity. What does, uh, what does masculinity, what role does masculinity do in instigating violence in the Syrian context? And th- there is often this kind of uh, fixation on understanding or framing the Syrian conflict as something, as as a result or as an outcome of certain, for example, sectarian violence or sectarian tension, or is it because of uh, only uh, authoritarianism? But I do think that it's 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 way it's it's more it's more than this. It's the way that our identity and our uh, sense of belonging has been uh, defined and kind of uh, perpetuated uh, for the last uh, five decades, especially when we have a very strong uh, national ideology imposed on us from above. So, for example, there is always this kind of given or naturalized feeling that in order to express your love to the nation, uh, you need to be able to sacrifice and die for the nation. And uh, this is something not only uh, in speeches or we've been indoctrinated into this since we were in primary schools. We do have, um, uh, for example, uh, I mean, compulsory conscription to two path-affiliated organizations, uh, Talaia, which is called the Syrian National Organization for Childhood, which goes through the the primary stage, and then also another one, the revu- the revolutionary youth union al Shabibe in high school. So since early uh, stages in your primary, you are uh, uh, you are actually trained to be a bathy, you are trained to be a masculinist, both female and males, and I think this has uh, shaped our how to show our uh, our I mean. Uh, faithfulness to to the nation is through uh, subscribing to these ethos and um, I don't think there has been there has been a continuation since the late 20th century till now of propagating these ethos which has in a way uh, instigated violence or normalized militarization in Syria so I always say or argue that the militarization uh, has not been actually um, manifested only after 2011, it has always been there and it has always been normalized in the Syrian culture and society. So, uh, t- from a very simple, out, um, very simple example of that, we used to wear uh, khaki. Um, uh, outfits for our schools and and kind of a very similar uh, militaristic uh, outfits to go to schools and this does represent or kind of echo or manifest uh, how uh, the regime or how the kind of uh, they want us to manifest certain message that we are always ready to fight and uh, sacrifice. That's really interesting. So there's a, a really strong performative dimension there. You're saying? Y- yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, and and it is it has got more toxic after two thousand eleven. But for example, I did write a, a journal article on national songs up to two thousand seven, and it has always been this 
kind of toxic i mean uh, this kind of very masculinist and and here when i say masculine i don't o- only mean uh, gender bias against women or, or or that women are subordinated or having a second place in these songs or in this culture but more or less i'm also talking about uh, men who don't want to fight and men who also are feeling uh, they are feeling the pressure uh, to fight in order to um, uh, to be uh, true to themselves as being this themselves as being how it's defined by the regime as uh, that you should be strong, you should be mm. physically capable, you should be uh, physically trained, and this has been also been uh, very uh, quite clear in the constitution, uh, in the constitution of the 1973, where there is much focus in two articles on how uh, the Ba'ath uh, the Ba'ath Party or the Ba'ath State should tra- should I mean. Um, train uh, the new generation or kind of prepare the new generation to be physically uh, uh, strong. Sure. It strikes me that it's it's all-encompassing as well. It captures the youth at a, at a very young age, as, as you're talking about with the, mm. the, the dress, which is, yeah. which is sort of all-encompassing, a tool of, of sovereign power, if you will. Yes, of course. Yeah, and 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 as I said before, it's not something that the regime has uh, has invented. I mean, this is also links back to these uh, th- these thinkers or these ideologues, like Saad al Hasri wrote two books on how to prepare uh, young children to be uh, a mil- military man and to defend the nation. So uh, it's pretty much like in Syria or Iraq. This has been. Uh, employed by Saddam Hussein or used by Saddam Hussein and Hafsal Assad when they came to power. Um, I do think that, for example, now I'm writing two pieces on that and how uh, that the violence or the loyalty that the regime has or the supporting base that the regime has does very much link to how uh, nationalism has been uh, mentally or kind of been internalized in the last few decades. So it's become to these who support Assad more about the nation or the national unity that uh, his his presence symbolize than uh, being with Assad himself. So there is also this kind of uh, this kind of construction of national of national identity and belonging impact in a way, uh, a political judgment. Sure. Rahav, we've taken up a lot of, of time already, but I want to just touch on on the use of some of the, the theoretical tools that you've, you've used in your work with regard to, uh, to the discussion of, of sectarianism. And again, this is something that, that you and I and, and other colleagues have engaged in, but you, you've made the point that... that ongoing literature on on sectarianism whilst making a number of really interesting claims and important contributions to helping understand um, contemporary political life, social, religious, cultural aspects, the conceptual and theoretical. You've made a point that it's it's perhaps a little bit blind with regard to gender. Can you tell us why, why is this such a big issue? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, when I when I started working on sectarianism, uh, thanks to your project, uh, when I was I mean, engaging with this, I found that there was very little about talking about that these 
nations or these kind of states are also uh, presumably, like in Syria or Iraq, they are very secular in their uh, in the way of. Uh, I mean, they started as secular states, but then we have this kind of break of sectarianism, and it is. To me, because they are, they've been under a very strong nationalist uh, target that they were propagation of masculine ethos and values that we do have violence. So I started to use uh, masculinity as uh, an analytical lens. And when I read the literature on sectarianism, I found out that like there is, as if there is very much blind, there is blindness to the role that gender plays in instigating violence and sectorizing the conflict and actually intriguing men to fight not only to defend their sect but also to be true to their uh, uh, male identity or how they've been grown up to believe in themselves as uh, male or masculines or how the nation or the state has imposed certain definitions of themselves of even the family, the tribe, the sect. Uh, they do have this kind of narratives or narration of how to be true uh, or how to uh, represent yourself. Uh, and, and this is how I saw that there was complete absence of looking uh, at masculinity as an analytical lens or as an explanatory lens. Uh, why do we have this? I think uh, sectarianism as a, as a growing field, it does remind me of nationalism as a growing field in the 1980s, when uh, certain scholars came forward like Mira Yuval Javes and said, like, look, to understand the nation, we should also look at gender. Um, so there has been some work on gender, of course, uh, but there hasn't been this kind of uh, explicit, uh, profound understanding of how gender and sectarianism interact with each other. And so I wrote actually out of anger and her positionality, my hmm. positionality played a rule, uh, a, a piece uh, and a journal article on that about uh, the, 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 the conceptual and theoretical limitations to understanding sectarianism in the Middle East. And I hope it, uh, it get accepted soon and, and it gets out. Well, having read a draft of that, I think it's a really important piece, and it, it certainly demonstrates what what these types of approaches can add to discussions of of sectarianism more broadly. But Rahaf, thank you so much for joining us. We've taken up a lot of your time, and it's been really fascinating talking to you about your work and about the things that are driving it. So, thank you. It's been a real pleasure today. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Rahaf, and as always, thank, thank you for listening. Until next time. Okay.